Uh, Father, we honour you and just recognise that every part of us gathering together today is an act of worship. And that includes coming to a time in your word. And so, Lord, we want to be wholehearted about that this morning, uh, that our eyes and our ears would just really be open to you. We recognise, God, that you are one who communicates with us as your kids and that you grow us and mature us and transform us. So, Lord, we ask that this would be more than simply information this morning, but that there would be an interaction that goes on between us and you that is life-changing and causes us to be more like your son, Jesus. Amen. So many of you would know that um, in our family we recently celebrated a wedding, that of Beth and Michael, and it was just a beautiful, joy-filled day as we witnessed them make a covenant with one another to become husband and wife and to form their own family. And any of you who've had kids get married would know that it causes you to kind of stop and pause and think a lot about family and about the seasons of life and the seasons of parenting and the generations that make up family. And uh, Beth and Michael were incredibly blessed to have all six of their living grandparents at their wedding between our two families. And there was just such a sense of the generations together celebrating their marriage. And as we lined up for family photos, and there were quite a raft of them, it just reinforced even more for me that they don't stand in isolation in their new family unit, that they form a part of the generations of both the A Church and Harvey family and the Hartley and Lloyd-Jones family. And that's an important aspect of the identity of their family moving forward, that there is a connection amongst the generations from which they come. And there are habits and there are beliefs and faith and skills and family traditions and character traits and wisdom that all will be reflected in Beth's and Michael's family that haven't just simply come from Justin and I or from Peter and Karen, but actually from our parents and our grandparents that have been passed through the generations. And this idea of generations and the idea of passing on faith and heritage through generations of family is something that is very important to God. Uh, when you look in scripture, there are over 150 biblical references to the generations. And as you read um, the narrative of scripture, you pick up this sense of history, of the permanence and the passing of truth and tradition just over time. And God clearly communicates to us that we are part of something larger that existed long before we did, that has been passed down to us, and that we are also part of something God is doing now that will continue long after we're gone, that there's this generational sense of being part of what God is doing on the earth. And you get that. I mean, I, I don't much like the genealogies, but you get that sense when you read the genealogies in Scripture that there is this long history with God um, passed through the generations of family. Now, on Mother's Day, we acknowledge and honour mothers and the calling of motherhood primarily within the framework of the natural family, just as we do for fathers on Father's Day. 
And God certainly places a privilege and a responsibility upon mothers and fathers to raise and disciple their children and to pass on faith and spiritual heritage to the next generation. But the Hebrew understanding of family is actually much broader than this single family unit that we tend to think of as family. And uh, I think I've spoken of this before, but it's something that I uh, just love the sense of, and that is that the most common word translated family in the Old Testament is actually the word mishpokor. And mishpokor isn't describing the single family unit of mum, dad and kids. Mishpokor is actually what it means is the bond of kinship that unites people together in a common belief system. So it's much more than our blood relatives. It's a tribe, if you like, particularly when you're putting it in the context of ancient Israel, but a bond of kinship or a tribe of people who are united together because of their common belief and faith. And biblically speaking, the concept of mishpachos carries with it because of the context that it's always referred to in scripture. It, within it contains this privilege and responsibility of communicating faith to the next generation that is not simply the responsibility of parents to their children, but in a broader community context of the older to the younger. And so when we think about Mishpachor and that sense of the bond and the connection that comes uniting us together in faith, that is what describes the church. And in the early language, um, sorry, in the language of the early church, it describes us as family, as members together of God's household. And in the household of God, we are all sons and daughters. But as a multi-generational family, we also need mothers and fathers in the kingdom. And what I mean by mothers and fathers in the kingdom is mature people of faith who will intentionally invest in and embrace that privilege and responsibility to pass on faith to the next generation. So in fact, that includes all of us, whether we've naturally had kids or not. That we are all called to grow as mature people of faith who are intentionally investing in and embracing that privilege and responsibility of passing on faith and standing alongside the next generation. So that's a bit of a long introduction before we get into the word this morning, but I really wanted to set that scene. That idea that we are a multi-generational household of God's people together, that we are sons and daughters, and that we also need mothers and fathers in the kingdom. And so the life that we're going to look at this morning is the life of Barnabas. So if you have your Bibles there, we're going to start in Acts 4. And we're just going to pick up a few spots where we get to know a little bit about Barnabas to help us to look at um, what are some of the characteristics of his life um, that are worth pursuing in ours. So we're picking up in Acts 4, verse 34. And uh, this is obviously quite early in the new church. We know because we we've read this passage of scripture that their believers are gathering together regularly and that they have everything in common. And then we read this in um, verse 34. There was not a needy 
person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, so that means that he's a Jew but was a foreign Jew, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So that's the first that we know about Barnabas. Now if you um, flick over to chapter 9, I'm going to pick up the story um, of his first interaction with Saul, which starts in verse 26. So again, Saul has um, had his conversion experience. He's been preaching in Damascus. He's pressed a few buttons and had to be smuggled out overnight and he's headed to Jerusalem. And we pick up in verse 26. And when he, meaning Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he, meaning Saul, went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. He was a bit of a handful, wasn't he? Um, and then finally, just today, we're going to quickly flick over to 11. And this is picking up the story now about 10 years down the track. The, city, the church at Antioch is beginning to grow because the believers have been scouted out um, further afield as a result of persecution. And there were some people who boldly were proclaiming the gospel in Antioch. And um, the church is growing there. And we pick up in verse um, 22 of chapter 11. The, the report of this, that the church was growing in Antioch, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went out to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. At the heart of Christian community and the household of God is the issue and the idea of discipleship. Discipleship has come to mean many things, but at its core, it is a relationship between a teacher and a student. It is a relationship that features love and commitment and authenticity and a vulnerability and accountability, and it's an intentional relationship. As followers of Christ, growth and transformation in our lives certainly comes through teaching from the pulpit and our own personal study and devotion. But that is not enough. There is also a need in all of our lives to receive teaching 
mentoring, discipling, whatever word you want to use there, in the context of true biblical discipleship. And among the many important patterns that Jesus laid out for us in his three short years of ministry, one of the things that he modelled very clearly was the importance of living our life with others. And he could have chosen any way he liked, as God, to get his message across. He could have simply preached only to the masses at a time. He was obviously not living in a time where he could have broadcast through social media, but had he come at a different season of life, he could have chosen that. But what he did is he literally staked his whole ministry on discipling 12 men. I find that quite staggering. And you will find that same pattern of discipleship, of walking out life with others in close fellowship with an accountability and an intention throughout the scriptural account of the early church. This was normal life for them. And I think for us as uh, um, modern-day believers, we've lost some of that somewhat, that sense of community that definitely um, really undergirded the early church. And I guess um, what I want to do today is just to highlight the importance of that and the pursuit of that in our lives. And I think that Barnabas presents us with a beautiful example of what that looks like, to disciple and walk alongside others. Um, And a challenge to us, if we ourselves want to grow as people of faith, who will also intentionally invest in and embrace this privilege and responsibility of passing on faith to the next generation. So what can we learn from the life of Barnabas about biblical discipleship or in the context of family in mothering and fathering in the kingdom in a multi-generational household of God? Well, firstly, Barnabas had a firm foundation of growing maturity in his own life. We first read about Barnabas in Acts 4, and we don't get a lot of information, but we get a few key facts that suggest that there's this foundation of growth and maturity developing in his own life. So he was not born Barnabas. He was called Joseph. Barnabas, as we read in Acts 4, which means son of encouragement, Um, was the name given to him by the apostles and obviously was a real reflection of his character and nature and one that for him to actually have been given a name that described that means that he must have been pretty consistently spurring others on, exhorting them, putting courage into them, which is what encouragement means, to put courage into. And so he must have been... um, This must have been really evident in his life on a consistent basis for them to give him this nickname and for that to be called out as a standout quality in his life. It sure is a standout quality I would love to have in mine. The second thing is that he... um, we are In this short passage in Acts 4, what's reflected to us is that he is in relationship with both the leadership and the body of believers and committed to the local church, the household of God at this time. 
He's actively participating in church life. He's in there in the mix as they're working out to share um, everything that they have in common and called out by name. Um, And so whilst it's not explicitly said, we would presume, and certainly by things we go on to learn about Barnabas, we would presume that he first submitted himself to being a disciple that he allowed others to come alongside him. We do know that he was a foreign Jew um, and from that place came into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know when that exactly happened. But here we find him in Acts 4, right in the midst of church life, um, involved and engaged, known and walking closely with others. And we assume because of the growth that you see in his life over time in his Christian character that he himself has had discipling, people coming alongside him and teaching him. And then finally from this short um, passage, the other thing we know is that he sold a field that he had and he brought all of the proceeds of that to the apostles. And that suggests both a sense of generosity but also that he had this wholehearted commitment to what God was doing in his midst. Like he was all in. I think that another marker of Barnabas's maturity, um, and I've alluded to this, was that his godly character was consistently displayed over time. This was not just a one soft act of generosity that we read in Acts 4 and then we don't really hear much more about him. There is this consistent godly character being revealed in his life. And so in Acts 11, which is, well, it's 10 years from um, when he first meets Saul and potentially another four or five years on top of that. So we're maybe talking about 15 years down the track, possibly even 20 by this point. We read about Barnabas again, and we read that he's sent to this fledgling church in Antioch that's been growing. And again, what's called out about him is his encouragement, this character trait of his. In fact, I would even go as far as to say that we could postulate that that is why he was sent to Antioch, that he just had this gift on his life to be able to come alongside young new believers and to encourage them. And so we're told that he calls them out and he cheers them on and says, remain faithful and keep steadfast. And um, he's described as a good man who is full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So there's just a consistency in his godly character, which is a mark of maturity. It's not just a once-off thing. And I think the other thing that really strikes me about Barnabas as we reflect on his maturity as a believer um, is that he didn't just simply attach himself to a rising star to get noticed. And I guess what I mean by that is we already know that he was demonstrating this spiritual fathering ability, building up, encouraging other believers, strengthening and discipling people in the Lord long before his association with Paul. Um, I think it's easy to forget that. We think about him and we think about him in ministry just in relation to, to Saul and then Paul as he became. But there's this long history in Barnabas's life that wasn't just about following and chasing after the next star to kind of get alongside. This was just a consistent thing in his life.
And we don't know the age difference or if there was any age difference between um, Barnabas and Saul. We, we don't know that. What we do know is that we see a man who is more mature and established in the Lord come alongside another. And that's certainly not to say that Barnabas um, had no more maturing to do himself or that there was no further growth required in his life. Um, but what we see is this firm foundation of growing maturity over time in God that then was in place before he started walking alongside and discipling Saul. Another thing that we can learn from Barnabas is that he was motivated to gather people into relationship and community. Barnabas gathered Saul into community. He included him and advocated him when others really did not want to. Um, after Saul's initial conversion in Damascus, as we already know, he, was, he did become accepted by the believers there and um, was preaching there for a while. Um, but when he comes back to Jerusalem this, some three years later, the disciples are still afraid of him and not really wanting to believe that he is a true disciple. And people can be pretty rude when they're scared. And so I'm imagining that their behaviour towards Saul did not look particularly inclusive. He was definitely not being invited onto trivia night tables or being invited for dinner. I imagine that he was being shut out and shunned. And so in steps Barnabas. And we read that Barnabas took Saul and he brought him to the apostles and he vouched for him. He spoke up for him. And that Greek word that um, in the phrase there that says he took him and brought him, it actually means to intentionally lay hold of and to lead and take with you. And I want you to keep that concept in mind because that is what discipleship looks like. It looks like leading and taking people with you. And so that's what Barnabas was doing in Saul's life. And I mean, it's pretty incredible, really, because Barnabas was willing to be associated with Saul, even at the potential cost of his own reputation, to bring him in to the community of believers, knowing that that was a crucial part of the development of the call on Saul's life, was that he was included in community. And that same phrase for took him and brought him is also used again in Acts 11 when Barnabas goes out looking for Saul of Tarsus and it says he took him and brought him to Antioch. It's that same concept again of intentionally laying hold of and leading and bringing with you. So Barnabas came alongside and he brought Paul close and brought him into relationship, not only with himself, but into the community and the body of believers, into the family of God. And so what we see here is that he intentionally embraced, again, this privilege and responsibility of passing on faith to the next generation, done so within that context of community. Thirdly, what we can learn from Barnabas is that he recognised, nurtured and actively, sorry, actively invested himself to cultivate God's call on Saul's life. So he saw the calling on Saul's life and then he nurtured that. 
So after seeing what God was doing in the church at Antioch and spending some time building up the new believers himself, Barnabas's next thought was to go and get Saul. I'm sure that there was a Holy Spirit prompt in there. And remembering that this is 10 years since the incident in Jerusalem now, and so we don't know, did they have an ongoing relationship? Were they pen pals? Did they visit each other? Was there an ongoing dialogue between Barnabas and Saul? We don't know. But what we know is that whatever Barnabas was seeing going on in Antioch, there was an unction in him to feel that, um, that Saul needed to be a part of it. And so he went and got him and brought him in and came alongside him. And that might be because he saw Saul's abilities and intellect. I imagine that he was an, in an incredible um, preacher and well-versed in um, the scripture. Um, but I also wonder if what Barnabas saw was this opportunity for Saul to grow in his calling, to develop the giftings on his life necessary for what it was that God wanted to do in Saul and through Paul um, by bringing him to Antioch with him. And so they stayed in Antioch for one year, teaching together, walking in life together. And I wonder what did that look like? You know, how did they bounce off each other as they were teaching the great many people that it says there? I wonder, did Barnabas give Saul a bit of feedback? You know, mate, I really loved how you brought out that point, but you were just a little bit too heavy-handed and rude there. Um, this is my... Um, artistic license here, of course, but, um, and I have no doubt that Barnabas also learned from Saul. Um, there is always that two-way interaction, even if you have one person more mature than another, we learn from one another. Um, but I certainly do feel, in my mind at least, that Barnabas had to bear more with Saul and Saul had to bear with Barnabas. But this moment, this moment that looked like it could have just been this one-year assignment a good opportunity to develop some of the skills and gifts in Saul's life by bringing him in to teach new believers. This actually ended up being a pivotal moment in Saul's life because it was from the church at Antioch that he and Barnabas were then sent out on their first and subsequent missionary journeys. And we, of course, know that um, the call on Saul's life didn't come from Barnabas. He, he was given that almost immediately after his conversion, that he would take the gospel to the Gentiles. But what we see in Barnabas is that he recognised that call and then he invested himself into Saul to live life with him in a hands-on kind of way, nurturing and cultivating the call on Saul's life. Like There's just such a humility about that. So in Barnabas, we have this firm foundation of maturity in his own life and um, submitting himself to discipling. We have that sense that we see in his life that he's motivated to gather people into community and into relationship and to walk closely with them. And we see in him this ability um, and this investment to recognise and nurture the call on Saul's life. We also see that Barnabas propelled Saul forward. There are a number of other accounts in Acts after the one that we've read about Barnabas and Saul. And what's quite interesting is there's a certain point in Scripture where they're no longer referred to as Barnabas and Saul, but instead become Paul and Barnabas. And again, although 
It's extrapolating a little bit. I think it reveals a lot about the heart of Barnabas as a spiritual father, that he was seemingly not concerned by Paul surpassing him, so to speak, in ultimately becoming the incredible leader and apostle that he was, that there was a humility and a faith um, in Barnabas in the way that he responded to what God had asked him to do, uh, to propel um, Paul forward in the call on his life. And um, Adam and I were talking during the week. Um, he was telling me about a track cycling race called the Madison, which um, I'm not really a cycle enthusiast, so I hadn't heard about it, but I had a, I looked it up on YouTube. And um, it's worth doing. It's a bit hairy to watch because the potential for collisions looks rather high to me. But anyway, it's this two-rider event that takes place in a velodrome, so inside. And each rider takes a turn in sprinting around the velodrome. Um, and then there's a point at which they meet and they switch out. And then the other rider starts sprinting. But as they switch out, the racer, or the one who's most recently been sprinting, passes their momentum onto their partner. So as they come alongside, the person who's sprinting grabs their hand and pushes them forward. So basically taking the momentum they've had from roaring around the track at high speed sprinting onto their partner so that they can start faster. And I just think that's an amazing picture of the discipling that we see in, in Barnabas's life and really what we're called to, that idea of passing on our momentum of faith to the next generation and of propelling them forward to run further and faster than we have. And then finally, in Barnabas's discipling, we see this pattern of reproducing. Now, I don't mean that Barnabas went around trying to create other mini-Barnabases. He, he, it wasn't a, a cookie-cutter-style discipleship program where everybody had to look the same. Um, I don't think that there could be any doubt in any of our minds that um, Barnabas and Saul were quite different men. I imagine, and it is my imaginings, um, that Barnabas was strong, but he was gentle and he was compassionate, um, that he was encouraging and humble, maybe quietly spoken, possibly not saying more than was necessary and rambling on and just this quiet, confident presence in people's life. Whereas I imagine Paul as zealous and passionate and shoots his mouth off and is hot-headed and gets thrown out of places and was incredibly clever but perhaps lacking some grace with people. And so this reproducing that Barnabas um, modelled um, was not necessarily in taking Paul and making him something that he wasn't. The way that Paul was, God needed those gifts and skills in Paul's life. So he wasn't trying to make him into a mini-me. Um, but there was something that replicated through this long-term discipling relationship of at least seven to ten years between these two men. Um, I'm sure that you know that they did come to a point where they came to blows and there was a sharp disagreement. And it was, interestingly, over a discipling issue. 
Um, there was a young man called John Mark, who I think was Barnabas's cousin, but um, he had attempted to accompany Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey and for whatever reason didn't last the distance and pulled out. And Paul obviously didn't think very highly of him for this. Um, but Barnabas the son of encouragement, the man with this heart to get alongside the younger generation, asks to give John Mark another go. Can we try this next trip? Maybe, maybe it'll be different this time. And Paul said no. And in this particular instance, Barnabas stood by John Mark and Paul and Barnabas separate and go in their separate ways. But when we look at the picture and the story that unfolds after that in terms of this idea of reproducing, discipling faith, it would appear that Barnabas's assessment of John Mark was actually accurate and that the investment that he then chose to make into John Mark's life, just as he had done for Paul, paid off. Because we read later in one of Paul's final letters in Timothy, or to Timothy, and this is a request at the end of his life and it is one of only a very small handful of things that he asked as he was in prison and close to the end of his life. He asked, would you bring John Mark to me because he will be helpful to me in ministry. There's this value of John Mark by this point in Paul's life. Um, and it's also thought that John Mark was the author of the Gospel of Mark. So despite the differences in these two men, it seems that Paul did learn from his old friend and mentor Barnabas because what we actually see towards the end of him, his life is that he is reproducing the same discipling and fathering that he received from Barnabas with his spiritual son Timothy. So as the household of God, we are called to be a multi-generational family of sons and daughters, mothers and fathers. Mothers and fathers create family. They are motivated to build community. They nurture identity. They speak life. They bring discipline. They see potential, bring wisdom, and teach and train their children for life. And likewise, in a healthy, thriving household of God, we are to produce generations of disciples who pass on their spiritual heritage and train others to do the same. And I think that this, this is our privilege and it is our responsibility. It's a challenge to us, um, even this morning, to examine our own lives, to see and to even recall, because all of us will have pivotal people in our life who came alongside and walked with us at various seasons. And I hope each of you can recall to mind people for whom you have done that. And this is much more than just an age thing, although as we've covered today, there is a maturity um, and a growing maturity involved in, in doing that. Um, but really, it's my prayer for each of us as um, a multi-generational um, household of God. And we are indeed that, both in ages and stages of life. It's something that I really value about us as a church family, is that we have 
um, from newborn babies to people in their 90s in our church family. And uh, that just brings a sense of the generations a bit more clearly into focus for us. Um, But we are called to disciple one another, to model that same pattern that Jesus himself uh, modelled, that uh, we are meant to be in community and in relationship with one another. So as I invite the worship team back, we are going to finish with a worship song this morning. And um, But I just want to, uh, pr- to pray for us um, because it really is my heart this morning that this is more than information, but um, something that um, is transformative in, in all of our lives. Uh, so would you join me? Heavenly Father, just we acknowledge again this morning uh, just that deep awareness that you've invited us into family, uh, that in you, Lord Jesus, uh, we've become sons and daughters. We also recognise, God, that in family comes both the privilege and a responsibility of passing on faith and heritage to the next generation. And so, God, um, as we examine our own lives, would you help us to continue to be humble and to allow people to come alongside us? Lord, we just so want to be a people who are growing in our maturity and in our likeness to your son, Jesus, and we recognise that we don't do that alone. And Father, would you also develop us in us an intention and even a a courage uh, to come alongside others? Would you give us eyes this week and in the coming weeks, God, as a family of believers here at Vision Church to look out for one another, to come alongside one another, to speak life to one another, to encourage one another to be steadfast in faith, that we be found by you, God, to... um, be a healthy family in you, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.